the book of Amos and the minor prophets in the Old Testament, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and coming now to Amos. As uh, I announced that this morning, one of the brothers in the church caught me after the service. We were chatting, and he said, that sounds like uh, somebody just come out of an, uh, uh, like an Iowa farm boy or something. And that's uh, precisely right in terms of, uh, of, of Amos, as we'll see in a moment. Notice it in verse 1 of chapter 1. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, uh, which he saw concerning Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before uh, the earthquake. Amos' name means uh, burden. Uh, he uh, was from a city of Tekoa, which was located out in what is known as the Judean wilderness, and uh, a little town that overlooks the Dead Sea and about 10 miles south of uh, Jerusalem. He grew up in what we would call, at least we called it when I was a kid, uh, he grew up out in the boonies. He grew up out in the sticks. And uh, he grew up out in uh, Rio Vista or uh, whatever kind of little tiny town that's out in the middle of, uh, uh, of nowhere uh, that nobody ever thinks anything significant is going to rise uh, up out of it. In fact, the, the single thing that Tekoa is famous for in human history is that it produced Amos uh, and that God called him to be a prophet to the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. And so he would have been a prophet who came from the south from Judah, that's where he's from, uh, the Judean wilderness, and a prophet then to the north. He is the only one uh, of uh, these uh, minor prophets that kind of crossed that border, came from uh, one kingdom and then to prophesy in another kingdom. Remember that the, uh, Israel is divided into two kingdoms at this particular point, uh, following a division within the uh, nation of Israel, uh, following the reign of, of Solomon, during the reign of his son Rehoboam, the northern kingdom was Israel, the southern kingdom was uh, Judah. He is going to minister to the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. And so God is going to call this kind of a, a, a country bumpkin to go into, uh, leave this very, very comparatively quiet and simple life in Tekoa and uh, going to take him uh, into one of the most wealthy, educated, cosmopolitan, sin-filled cities uh, that existed in that part of the world and in uh, that day into uh, Bethel. We're told uh, also, uh, we're told here in this verse that he was a shepherd, uh, he was a herdsman, that is, he was a, he uh, bred sheep, at least his family appeared to, and he was a part of that, and then also raised sheep. We're going to find out a little bit later in chapter 7, verse 14, that he was a tender of the uh, sycamore fruit. And so he was a, a fruit picker, and specifically the sycamore uh, fruit that is being referred to here is a, is a form of fig in the Middle East. And so he's a fig picker, and that, that's what he is. And uh, that's how I think of Amos all of the time. And uh, you might remember those of you who are older, Gallo used to run a bunch of ads when we were uh, young, and they had the one guy that he described himself as the little old winemaker me. I don't know how many of you remember that. Uh, but Amos was the uh, little old fig picker me. And a pretty humble kind of, of beginnings, but a good way to uh, remember him. It, it encapsulates him perfectly. His lone credential, as we'll see later in chapter 7 as well, is that God called him. And God chose him to be a prophet. Uh, he heard from God, and then he spoke what it is that he heard God uh, speak to him. And uh, fundamentally, that's all that matters, uh, certainly as it relates to a uh, to a prophet. A person can have all kinds of education, all kinds of training, all kinds of uh, different things that, 
uh, can be poured into their lives, uh, but they'll never be a prophet unless God speaks to them something to say and then gives them the power to say it and then says amen to the message that they deliver. In anything that God calls us to as Christians, the calling is everything. Now sometimes we can kind of be messing around a little bit. I think God's called me to do this, and we try this thing here, and we go, oh no, that's, he didn't call me to do that. I thought he might be. And sometimes it can take a little while to settle into just what he's called us to, uh, to be in terms of service to him within the body of Christ and in the world as, uh, as a whole. But the calling is everything. Once we discover what it is that he's called us to do, he will add everything that he needs to that calling to make us fruitful uh, in it. And he certainly did that uh, with Amos. No uh, uh, search committee would have ever chosen him for this position. He looked like the least qualified person uh, from this little tiny nothing town, and he's going to go to Bethel, the hub of idolatry and, and wealth and covetousness and sin, and, uh, and speak to them. No one will ever listen to him. No one will give him the time of day, but they would because he was called uh, by God. Uh, later in chapter 7, when we get there, Amos will say that he wasn't a prophet nor the son of a prophet, and what he is saying there, that in a technical sense, he had never been formally trained uh, for the office of a, of, of a prophet. He had never gone through uh, the school of the prophets or anything like that. God just called this uh, uh, man uh, out of Tekoa and called him to do this and then equipped him uh, to, uh, to do it. And so he didn't come from any kind of recognized religious order out of Jerusalem or anywhere, anywhere else. And he, he was just what we might call a, a, a layman uh, today. And of course, Amos is one of the great encouragers to every single Christian man and woman that wants to serve the Lord. Because, uh, as we spoke about a little bit this morning, the tendency is when God calls us to do something, we see that it, out, uh, it overwhelms and outstrips our natural ability and talent to do what He's called us to do. It's the kind of thing that we would never dream of doing in and of ourselves. And that's the whole idea. So that when He uses us, then He will get... Uh, the glory uh, for it. And so he's this so encouraging in that the calling is everything. God will add everything to that calling. And we'll see in his vocabulary, his figures of speech, his illustrations are all very simple. Uh, they're characteristic of someone who's been grown up in a, in a rural kind of, of setting. I remember one time hearing a guy and um, uh, he, and he was uh, talking about being in a situation where he did something that was kind of inappropriate at the moment, and uh, he said, I felt like hair on a biscuit. <laughs> well, if you've ever had hair on a biscuit, you know a hair is an unwanted, uh, an unwanted thing. And this is just that kind of what you might figure you'd you know, hear from the South of these kind of maxims and sayings that are, are said, and he's full of this kind of, of very, very clear uh, uh, way of putting things. Very simple, very clear, very blunt. Later on, he's going to call the, uh, the, the women of Israel cows. And, uh, and, uh, and um, in, in one of the, the, the great moments of, of bluntness, uh, in, in the Old Testament. Sometimes you can get, I think, so polished that uh, no one knows what you're saying and, uh, and, and, and political. It is easy after a while if you go through the school of whatever uh, or you are called to do something that is public like what uh, God has called me to do in terms of teaching the Bible or calls you as a prophet or prophetess or whatever it might be is, uh, is to finally learn how to say things so as uh, to not offend anyone. And uh, that's, a, that's a very easy thing to, uh, to learn. 
And uh, so nobody gets offended, but nobody gets helped in that kind of an environment. If I'm going to interpret God's Word that way, as the old saying goes con- concerning the potential of a sermon, if it was poison, it wouldn't hurt anyone, and if it, uh, if it was medicine, it couldn't help anyone. And, uh, and, and it's very easy to fall into that kind of a place where it's about just holding things together rather than declaring the truth of God and uh, uh, he declared the truth of God. wasn't flashy uh, at all. And of course, today there's a tremendous emphasis upon flash. Uh, we're in competition with the world, sometimes we think, with getting the attention of people, holding the attention of people. Will they come out? There's got to be big names and big this and big that and, and uh, all of it. Uh, but any, any place where uh, God is the center of attention and is allowed to be that and to be who He is in the midst, then, then uh, that is going to be, uh, that's the most dynamic environment that you can possibly be in, in the middle of. But I think this emphasis upon uh, charisma, able to hold the crowd, able to, to dress and uh, look poor while wearing an outfit that costs $1,500, uh, in, in front of the congregation, I think it can discourage so many uh, young people who are looking to go into these kind of, uh, of, of callings because it, 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 uh, it, it's nothing uh, of, of the sort. And it's a tremendous pressure to put, uh, upon, uh, to put upon people. The message is everything. The message is the most important thing to deliver the message and then allow the Holy Spirit to do with it what He decides to do with it in people's lives. Everybody has a need to hear the truth and what they do with it then is their business. But our business is to tell people the truth about what God says about things. I remember many, many years ago um, sitting right over here in this part of the sanctuary there was a uh, a brother in the Lord, well known in the community, and he was a friend. And uh, he came with his wife, and she was uh, famous for movies and Broadway plays and stuff like that. And so uh, she's sitting right there. And then after the service was over, I was up in the front, and she came up and she started to talk to me. And she and and she said directly, she said, "Now with you, the message is everything." And, and I knew what she was saying. It's not about a show. It's not about pr- providing ambience or uh, work in the crowd or anything like that. It's, it's about the message. And, and I thought that was interesting. Of course, her in the field of entertainment would recognize it. And so uh, sometimes people will say to me, uh, don't, and we will get to teaching the Word here. Well, I'm already in chapter 1. I'm on safe ground. But they'll say, oh, pastor, uh, you know, never stop teaching the Word of God. And I, and I say, well, you pray for me related to that, but I feel a pretty strong confidence that I never will. Because uh, when you don't have a song and a dance, then you've got to stick with the Word of God. Uh, I couldn't get up here and fill this time for five minutes on my own, except it's the Word of God. In fact, I, I tried to do it one time. In the early days, in coming over and driving over from Napa to Modesto and teaching, one time I drove over and I forgot my notes for the Sunday morning message. And I'm virtually a brand new Christian. And, uh, and so uh, my notes were two hours away. I'm in Bob's big boy putting on my white shirt for the morning service. And I realized that's happened. I get up, I've told the story before, I get up in front now uh, to teach. And I uh, said everything I knew about First Peter, uh, which was the book I was teaching, that took me about 30 seconds. And then it took me another minute to say everything I knew about the whole Bible. And then, uh, then it became, everybody became uh, deadly aware that I didn't know what I was talking about up in front. And I uh, uh, readily confessed, I forgot my notes, and I, let's close in prayer. And, and so we did, talking about weakness, you know, and infirmities this morning, and, uh, and, and then uh, so we did. But the message is everything. I'm convinced that 
in the day in which we live, in which we so desperately need a revival, we're either looking at, uh, right in the face of the rapture of the church or, or, or a revival. The world, uh, uh, the world is not going to be able to continue indefinitely in, in the, the speed at which it's moving in the direction that it's moving in. And, uh, and, and then what God does so often is He takes an Amos, some person that's off here in the corner, nobody knows about him, uh, he's not on any kind of a circuit or anything like that, and then raises this guy up like David out in, the, out in Bethlehem, overlooked within his own family, and then boom, he speaks the Word of God, and God gives life to it. And uh, that's how God works. So he prophesied uh, again to the northern kingdom of Israel, and as he does it, he's got kind of a triple disadvantage. He's a shepherd and a farmer, which is uh, no high credentials in, in religious circles in those days. He's without any recognized religious credentials, and he's going to the city of Bethel, that is a, a city that is the center for the worship of of, of false uh, religion and re center of religious titles, and then he comes from uh, out of the country. And so it would be, as my friend said uh, this morning, it'd be like a hardworking, living close to the earth, Iowa farm boy coming to some center of culture and wealth in the world today, like Rome or New York City, and everyone would think, who is this, and who does he think he is? And so he prophesies uh, to Bethel where Jeroboam had erected one of his two golden calves and made it the capital of the idolatrous northern kingdom uh, of, uh, of uh, Israel. He would have been a contemporary of the prophet Hosea who also prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel uh, but no record that the two of them uh, ever met. And so we're told a little bit about the timing of his ministry, that he ministered during the reigns of Uzziah and Judah, about 790 to 739 B.C., and at a time, again, where the kingdoms are divided. Israel in the north, her economy is booming uh, without a deficit. It's booming. And uh, they've had recent military successes. They're trusting in both their wealth and their military, and uh, while being a mess spiritually and being a mess morally. And so he's going into a place where they would have been very, very smug and confident in their false gods and in their, uh, in their idolatry. And here comes this guy out of the sticks and is going to start to talk to them uh, about God. And that's exactly what he does. So the theme of the book is it's just a very, very strong call that God makes through Amos upon Israel to repent of their sin uh, because God will judge sin and He must judge sin. Two of the key verses within the book before we head into it kind of formally here in a moment, Amos chapter 3 verse 2, as God speaks to the northern kingdom of, of Israel. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. And then Amos chapter 5, verse 23, uh, God declaring, Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. And of course, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, made that line famous in his I Have a Dream speech and uh, one of the powerful verses of, uh, of, uh, of Amos and a powerful line in, in that uh, sermon. And so in his first two chapters here, uh, uh, Amos pronounces judgment upon eight nations before he focuses his judgment uh, upon uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. He declares the Lord roars from, Lion, uh, from Zion 
and utters his voice from Jerusalem. So here he is. He's a sheep herder, and, uh, and so he was very well aware of the authority of a lion. A lion is called the king of beasts, and in the way that a lion is the king of beasts, the God of the Jewish people, the God of the Bible, is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And now he's going to roar as a lion and, and bringing his message to these nations and also to the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. It is... <laughs> I mean, it's not funny, but it's, it, it's funny in an ironic kind of way. The Lord, it, uh, 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 Amos writes, the Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. You might remember that uh, when uh, uh, Jeroboam started that whole false religion up in the northern kingdom of Israel, he started the worship of the two golden calves because he didn't want people going from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom to Jerusalem in order to worship uh, God there and then maybe lose power and control uh, over the people. And so he, this whole uh, religious system of idolatry that he set up in the north is completely man-made. And, and God <laughs> roars from Jerusalem, and it's His way of saying, uh, and Jerusalem was the only place that He was to be worshipped. It was the only place that sacrifices were to be made to Him. And so He roars from Jerusalem, meaning He never left it. Jerusalem never ceased to be uh, the place to come and worship the Lord. And it's like God saying, I'm down here in Jerusalem, and I don't know what you set up there in Dan and Bethel, but it has nothing to do with me. And the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Speaking of the, uh, the shriveled vineyards, the shriveled uh, 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 orchards, and all that it would occur because of God's judgment. And then God begins in, in verse 3, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away from its judgment. And so um, he uh, now begins in these two chapters eight prophecies of eight judgments on eight different nations uh, due to their sin. And every prophecy begins with the same words. For three transgressions of here, Damascus, and for four, I will not turn away my judgment. And, and it, in, in this, uh, God is not communicating that we're to count three transgressions, and, and then when a fourth uh, one uh, occurs concerning uh, uh, each of, uh, uh, of, of the nations, uh, that we're to notice that that is happening. It's a way of God communicating that the sin of all of these nations was full. In fact, it was more than full, and, and that their judgment was long overdue. And so it was a, would be a way of us saying they have gone one step too far. Uh, I let them go to step three without the judgment, but now they've gone to step four. They've gone one step too far, and now they're going to bring judgment upon themselves. It appears that the, the sin that Amos mentions and, and the word because occurs in all eight of these prophecies, uh, God identifies the specific sin that represents the one step too far that each one of these nations took and, and the reason for the judgment that uh, was going to come on them despite all of God's uh, uh, warnings of judgment e even before that time. And so each prophecy is a prophecy of doom, follows a f similar pattern. First, there's a, a, a declaration of an irreversible judgment going to come upon them, and then the naming of the specific sin, the specific affront to God that they're engaging in that's going to warrant the judgment, and then third, a description of the judgment that would come upon each of them uh, as uh, a result. In all of the judgments, there is fire mentioned as a part of the judgment, and fire being one of the uh, most destructive of, of the elements of nature 
in, in, in terms of God uh, speaking of the seriousness of, of the judgment that He would bring upon them. And so here He speaks, as I read it once again in verse 3, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, uh, I will not turn away uh, its punishment. And then He gives the reason for their crime. He gives their sin because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. Uh, but I will then send a fire into the house of Haziel, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus, cut off the inhabitant of the valley of Avon, and the one who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden, the people of Syria, shall go captive to Ker, uh, says the Lord. And so their crime is given that they threshed uh, Gilead, with uh, implements of iron, and so uh, they were guilty of cruelty, uh, cruelty toward uh, other people. Gilead, you might remember, was that section of land that lay on the eastern side of the Jordan River when the children of Israel came in to conquer the land, and uh, they liked it because of, uh, it was good for livestock and and uh, uh, raising uh, cattle and all. And so the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, uh, they settled there on that side of the Jordan River. And so uh, Amos is referring to a recent event. It was well known to the audience in which somehow this newly powerful uh, Damascus had invaded Israel's uh, territory. They committed atrocities against the uh, citizens of Gilead. And in the ancient world, a threshing uh, sledge was this very, very heavy wooden sledge that they would put metal, uh, uh, metal on the bottom of it, and then they would roll it over the wheat that had been harvested in order to separate uh, the, uh, the, the grain from, uh, from uh, the chaff. And it appears that uh, this refers to their kind of either a, a crushing destruction of Gilead uh, that God did not want them to do, or it, it, it could very well uh, be that they committed a war atrocity against the citizens of, of Gilead, and they literally dragged these kind of implements across dead bodies or dying bodies uh, as, as well as prisoners and, and producing this horrible, horrible uh, mutilation. And so here the Lord speaks out against uh, uh, this kind of cruelty that is done on the part of, of human beings uh, toward uh, others. And so, in the eyes of the Lord, winning a war against others does not allow the victorious nation to then commit atrocities against the nation or the group of people that have been uh, defeated in, in uh, the battle. Of course, we have what's known as the Geneva Convention that it exists with all of this in mind. It prohibits the use of uh, poisonous gas in warfare. It demands that if people are taken as prisoners, that they be given proper medical care, that they give proper uh, nutrition. And there's this idea to make even war uh, something somewhat civilized in the modern uh, age so that people do not resort, agree not to resort to these kind of, uh, of atrocities. And so we talk about uh, the rules of war even today, and uh, God has rules as well. And as we see here in terms of uh, their punishment, uh, fire would be sent into the house, verse uh, 4, of Haziel, devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. Uh, Haziel and Ben-Hadad were two of the very worst enemies, cruelest enemies of, of Israel in the ancient world. When God talks about breaking uh, the gate bar of Damascus, their capital uh, city there, of course a gate bar would be you would close the gates and put that bar down from the inside to keep people from getting in. Once that bar is broken, then the enemy just flows in 
and, and will destroy. And so God says, I'm going to produce a lethal breach in your defenses, and uh, I'll open up your city to your enemies. And uh, the Lord would then cut off all the inhabitants of the valley of Avon, cut off the scepter from uh, Beth Eden. He'd break off the lineage, bring to an end the lineage of, in the dynasty of, of Haziel, the wicked king. And the people of Syria would then uh, go uh, uh, be captive to Ker. And all of this was fulfilled about 20 years after Amos's prophecy. Damascus was conquered. And, uh, and the population was exiled by uh, the Assyrians and the Assyrian Empire, all exactly as God had declared. Now, one of the things that's interesting is you get a little bit, little bit later here into chapter 2, and uh, God uh, speaks very firmly of His judgment of, for their sin of the southern kingdom of Judah and then the northern kingdom of Israel. But you can look at it and say, well, why is God... Uh, upset with the pagans. They don't believe in him. They don't care about his word. They got their own gods. They got what, you know, uh, you know, what kind of, why would he even bother with them uh, related to that? They claim no loyalty to the God of the Bible. They certainly were not misrepresenting the God of the Bible like Judah and Israel were. And the reason that he judges them is because the earth is the Lord's. It all belongs to Him. And, and every single human being or civilization in this world is either advancing good, advancing health, or they are uh, bringing disease and dishealth to the world, the world that belongs to God. And so even though someone may say, I don't believe in the Bible, I don't care uh, uh, about the Bible, I don't believe in the God of the Bible, God doesn't care about that. And the reason He holds them responsible in human history is because the Bible existed. Just because a person chooses to remain ignorant of the Bible all of their life does not mean they will not be judged ultimately by the Bible because they had access and opportunity to know it and to know the ways of God, to know the way to be right with God, and so they are guilty in their own way before God. And so God uh, uh, judges, uh, judges them as a result of it. And then in verse 6, you see how we're flying here. For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not turn away uh, its punishment. Uh, speaking of the Philistines, Gaza was a, a, a capital city of uh, one of them, chief cities of the Philistines, and then he gives their sin because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them to uh, Eden. And so here you have uh, the Philistines' violation was her slave trade. And it appears they uh, captured entire communities uh, in, in their slave raids. They would leave no one. Uh, this would include even Jewish uh, communities. And then they would sell them to the Edomites who then sold them to whoever would buy them. And then these people would end up uh, shipped all over the world. I mean, and imagine the horror of such a thing happening to your spouse, to your children, all of you being separated, your village. It goes on yet today. And uh, one day life is, is normal, and within a few days you're living as a slave in a foreign land. And you think about the kind of hard-heartedness that, again, exists even today. The hard-heartedness of a person who could do that to another human being uh, for, uh, for money. And imagine how all of that was viewed by uh, uh, by uh, God. And so here you have the enslaving, their sin, the enslaving of others for profit. But it's not just the, sl the slave trade in terms of, of what's being described here. What about enslaving people to drugs for profit? Enslaving people to pornography and lust for profit? 
for social media, enslaving people to social uh, uh, media, knowing full well how to enslave a person. And the enslaving of other human beings, knowing that you're doing it, in order that you can have uh, some coins jingle in your pocket. And it's an affront uh, to God. And so the punishment for their sin is, I will send fire upon the wall of uh, Gaza, which shall uh, devour its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, another one of their major cities, and the one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and uh, the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, uh, says uh, the Lord. And so the, the, he, the result is that the remnant of the Philistines would perish. Now, perhaps you have noticed that you have never in your life run into a Philistine. So you don't know my husband. He's a Philistine inside out. So we use the term Philistine for someone who's a, a Philistine. But there are no literal physical Philistines uh, that are in existence today in the fulfillment of, of this prophecy. Uh, the extermination, the death sentence to them as a people would be carried out uh, by Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, when they uh, conquered uh, the, the uh, land of, of, uh, uh, of the, Palesti uh, of the um, Philistines there. Um, in, in Gaza and her other capital cities. And then he moves on to Tyre, which speaks of the Phoenicians for three transgressions of Tyre, and uh, for four, I will not turn away um, its punishment. And here's the sin, because they delivered up the whole captivity uh, to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood, but I will send a fire upon the uh, wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces. And so Tyre was the leading city of uh, the Phoenicians, and their crime was, their sin was, they delivered up the whole captivity to uh, Edom, didn't remember the covenant of brotherhood. And so, uh, again, like the Philistines, they were guilty of slave trade, uh, but they were condemned as, as being even greater in their sin, and that they engaged in slave trade in violation of uh, treaty, in violation of their word. You might remember that Hiram, who was the king of Tyre at the time of King David, uh, that when David died and Solomon built the temple, that the uh, Israel and the Phoenicians, Tyre, entered into an agreement. They entered into a treaty to look out for one another, to, uh, to supply one another with uh, supplies. And here you have Tyre breaking that treaty uh, for profit. And the Lord uh, warns them and tells them that the punishment will be uh, uh, there. I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces. And so the Lord would uh, destroy the palaces of Tyre. The fulfillment of this occurred. Uh, uh, Phoenicia's judgment. Phoenicia was kind of a a kingdom, a country in the ancient world that was made up of various cities, significant cities that sat upon the Mediterranean Sea. And the first one to uh, kind of take a crack at the fulfillment of this judgment upon Tyre was uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, over the Babylonian uh, Empire, and then Alexander the Great sometime later would come in and utterly uh, destroy, is, is the head uh, of the Greek Empire, utterly destroy Tyre and, uh, uh, and uh, fulfill this prophecy. Then he moves on to Edom in verse 11. For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. And then there's the word because again and, and their sin because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. Uh, and so uh, his crime was, their crime was they pursued their brother with the sword. Who was their brother? The Jewish people. The Edomites were descendants of Esau, uh, of Jacob and Esau fame. And, uh, and so they were cousins, they were brethren, they were linked by uh, blood, and 
So here you have a cruel, brutal treatment uh, of their kinfolk, of the Jewish people uh, in, in uh, persecuting them and uh, in a bloodthirsty fashion. They cast off all pity in doing that, uh, uh, we're told in, in meeting it out there in, uh, in verse 11. And the reason is because in his, uh, his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So here, here are the Edomites. Uh, they've got a beef with their cousins. They've got a beef with the Jewish people. And, and they kept that, uh, that uh, vengeance. They kept that anger. They nursed it in their hearts. They kept it alive too long. And then when the opportunity came to express it, uh, they went crazy. And so this is a very, very strong warning related to any of our hearts this evening. If there is a perpetual unforgiveness in our heart towards someone, or there is a long-standing bitterness in my heart where I would look and say, if I ever get the chance to do uh, what they did to me, I will do it in spades. I will go after them uh, on this. That's a very dangerous thing because the tendency will be, and the reason that God keeps vengeance to Himself is that we will, is that we will always overstep it. And once this kind of anger, this kind of bitterness starts to find expression, almost always it goes way beyond what is acceptable uh, before we kind of uh, quiet back down uh, uh, a little bit. And so uh, we lose control of it. And so this was the, uh, uh, the attitude of, uh, of the Edomites toward uh, the Jews. And, and then the, how... Ultimately, uh, she uh, uh, performed such uh, anger and, and bloodlust against her. And then God speaks of the judgment, but I will send a fire upon uh, Taman, which was the largest city uh, in, the, in the south of Edom, and which shall devour the palaces of Basra and the largest city of Edom um, in, in the north. In other words, the entire uh, country would be uh, uh, consumed with God's, God's judgment. And then we come to Ammon in verse 13, and, uh, or Almond. I mean, it's just up to you, whatever you, would, however you want to call it. Uh, I've, I've been in Modesto a lot of years, and I haven't been able to fix this. And so, how are we going to fix all the other problems in the world when we can't even uh, know whether they're almonds or almonds. I mean, it's just hopeless, isn't it? Okay. So, for three transgressions of the people of Ammon, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. And then the reason, for they ripped open uh, the women with child in Gilead that they might enlarge their territory. And so here uh, is, is their crime, uh, the, the atrocities against the Jews, again, who lived in the area uh, of Gilead east of the Jordan River. Uh, and uh, when they captured uh, the women who were pregnant, they tore open their bellies to kill both the baby and, uh, and, and the mother. And this kind of thing was not unheard of in, in the ancient uh, world. And the reason for attacking, the reason for this uh, kind of unspeakable violence was just simply to enlarge their territory. No affront had been brought against them. No wrongdoing had been brought against them. They just wanted uh, 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 more land. It would have been a, a, a inexcusable no matter what the provocation uh, would have been. They probably made a, a special focus upon uh, males in the womb, that, that idea where they would look at it and say, well, the only good Jew is a dead Jew. And so we might as well kill them in the womb rather than meeting them in, in the battlefield in 20 years. And this was the thinking, and yet the thinking today among some people in, in dealing with their, uh, with their uh, uh, enemies. And so they committed uh, this violence against uh, the most defenseless in wartime in the ancient world. 
Why, why were the pregnant women vulnerable in this way? They couldn't flee. Everybody else could flee uh, ahead of the invasion of the Ammonites. They could not flee. And then God watched the Ammonites come in and do this to the most vulnerable uh, people uh, there uh, within, within uh, the, the territory. And when everybody else is, is fleeing and they're leaving behind mothers or they're leaving behind wives or sisters that are pregnant, uh, they're thinking to themselves, surely the Ammonites will show pity uh, to a pregnant woman. And yet... God watched what they did and said, no, uh, uh, that wasn't enough to solicit any kind of, of mercy in, in their hearts at all. And of course, this would be the most grievous of things in the eyes of the Lord uh, concerning this kind of violence being done to anyone, uh, much less as we read about the Lord's concern for the powerless his concern for the most vulnerable within the culture. This was an absolute affront uh, to the Lord. And of course, we can't help but think about uh, the abortion industry in this regard uh, today. And uh, I don't always, in, in, I'm thankful that in recent days, that even within R Roman Catholicism, uh, the, the, this has become such a blight and an affront uh, to even them that they're standing up to uh, President Biden and also Speaker Pelosi who claim to be good Catholics and yet champion this, this industry and protect it year in and year out and endeavor to uh, in, enlarge on it. It's a great uh, affront to, uh, to the Lord. And so God's judgment upon them, verse 14, I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, which was their capital of Ammon, and it shall devour its palaces, shouting amid shouting in the days of battle, meaning a very fierce battle would be waged upon the streets of the capital city, and a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into captivity, he and his princes together, uh, says the Lord. And so the Lord says, I'll turn the tables on you, and you'll get a, a taste of, of your own uh, medicine. And this judgment was ultimately uh, fulfilled in Nebuchadnezzar as he uh, brought the full military weight of the Babylonian Empire down upon uh, the Ammonites. Chapter 2, we'll see how far we get. Thus says the Lord, as he moves on to Moab, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away its judgment. And then here's the sin because he burned the bones of the king of Edom uh, uh, to lime. And so in the ancient world, to open up a tomb, uh, to desecrate a corpse was one of the very worst things that you could ever do as an affront uh, to other people and an affront in the eyes uh, of God, and especially to do that related to a king. And so apparently there was some kind of a raid that they uh, made into the territory of Edom, and, uh, and they came upon this king, and then, and then they uh, uh, performed this act. And completely unnecessary for uh, whatever the purpose was in their invasion of the land, there was no need to go to this place. And uh, this act represented a spirit of revenge that was so strong uh, they were not content even with the death of their enemies, but to, to burn their bones. And that spirit of revenge that, again, is so powerful and we can lose control of it so quickly and find ourselves uh, at one moment on the right side of God and the next moment horribly, horribly on the wrong side. Uh, of, uh, of God. And so God spoke of their punishment. I will send a fire upon Moab, and, and it shall devour the palaces of Kerioth. Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting and trumpet sound, and I will cut, cut off the judge from uh, its uh, midst and slay all of its princes uh, with him, says uh, the Lord. And so he would bring destruction uh, upon the entire uh, kingdom, again fulfilled when Nebuchadnezzar uh, swallowed uh, them up. 
in, in his uh, conquest of that land, and you might uh, notice that you have never, ever met a Moabite in the course of your life because they ceased to exist as God prophesied they would when the judgment of Babylon came upon them. And then God moves now to Judah, getting a little bit closer to home. I mean, Amos is prophesying, and he's prophesying about all of these bad Gentile nations. Uh, Any Jew, whether in the southern kingdom of Judah or the northern kingdom of Israel, would say, oh yes, absolutely, they're all pagans and awful and terrible uh, people, and it's good to hear that God is going to, you know, lower the boom on them in terms of judgment. Uh, But then God begins to get very, very close, and he includes them as well. For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, the southern kingdom. And here's their sin, because they have despised the law uh, of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Their uh, lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers uh, followed. Now, that's an interesting progression that's listed here. And he condemns them because they despise the word of God. And, uh, and, and that was the attitude toward the word of God. And you see even within our culture how people despise the word of, of God. And it is a despising of the word of God that then moves into the disobedience of the word of God and then into idolatry, which is the progression that occurs here. Why do people despise the word of God? I think that Jesus put it the most simply, of course, that anyone could when he spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and he spoke about the fact that light has come into the world in in terms of himself, and uh, people rejected him uh, because they didn't want the light, they wanted to live in darkness. And, And you can bet everything that you own, don't do it, but you could. Uh, that behind all rejection ultimately, when it's all brought forth into the open in, at the white throne judgment of God, that ultimately all rejection of Christ will come down to some aspect of darkness that I did not want to give up in order to become a Christian. And so it looks like a, the despising and all of the emotion and all of the rejection and all of the everything, and, and all of it is just a show uh, to hide the fact that this Christianity and this God of the Bible is getting too close to what it is that I never want to give up in my life. And so they scorn the Word of God, they despise the Word of God, then comes the disobedience to Uh, the Word of God, which then turns into idolatry. When he says, their lies have led them astray, uh, lies which their fathers followed, he's talking about idols there. Uh, Idols that promised something but could never uh, deliver them in the way that God uh, can uh, come through on, on His promises. And everyone worships something in life. Everyone has a master passion in, in their life. And, uh, and uh, if I do not worship the God of the Bible, then I am worshiping something else in life, whether it's myself, whether it's a relationship, whether it's things, whether it's power, whether it's a position, whether it's being thought well of by other people. Everyone worships something and lives for something, something that gets us out of bed in the morning in order to continue to pursue that particular thing. Everyone has it in their life. And that's the interesting thing about our culture and even attacks by uh, uh, atheists and so forth against Christianity is they always keep Christianity on the defense. And of course, we have an apologetic. I mean, we have reasons for our faith in Christ. That's not an issue. But they always keep you on the defensive because they never want uh, the Christian to then ask, well, tell me what do you worship? What's your master passion in your life? What's it all about, Alfie? What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Uh, What is it that uh, is behind all of this? And then you begin to examine that and examine the quality of human being that is produced and, and that idols produce, whether it's myself or physical idol. And it can't produce much because they're based on lies. And then God gives the judgment that will come 
upon them, but I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour uh, the palaces of uh, Jerusalem. And so uh, this sin of a despising and disobeying of the Word of God. And then he moves on to Israel uh, herself. And uh, they had to be feeling pretty good about it. All right, you knocked out all of those um, uh, other nations there, and then you even, you know, stepped on Judah's toes, but you haven't messed with us yet. And then God finally comes to Israel here for three transgressions of Israel and for four. I will not turn away its punishment because, and here the list is long, uh, for their sins and the reason for their judgment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of uh, sandals. And this speaks of, of the fact that they had a very corrupt court system uh, a corrupt means of judging in, in the court system, and uh, even a, a person who was uh, clearly right in a legal proceeding in that day could lose their case uh, by way of uh, even a moderate bribe that could be uh, offered. I mean, a pair of sandals could be offered to, uh, to uh, judge the case away from the poor and, and toward the person who was wealthy in the situation. And, and so the poor had no help, hope of getting any kind of justice in the judicial system in Israel at that time. And God warned in the law of Moses that was never, ever to take place. So a corrupt court system, they pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. And this speaks of covetousness. It was the wealthy taking the land away from the poor and uh, gathering it to themselves, amassing the land under any kind of means by which they could do it. And then uh, Amos talks about them being so zealous for it, is that once they stole the land from the poor, they were still jealous of the dirt that was in the hair of the poor from his land. And this is how uh, extreme things had, be, had become with a covetousness. And a man and his father go into the same girl that is the same concubine or the same temple uh, prostitute. It would be wrong for one to go to any of them, but for a father and son uh, to do that was an especial abomination. And of course, this was, uh, pra they're practicing the great sin of the Gentiles, which was, it, it always has been sexual immorality, but it marked Israel at that time as well. They lie, lay down uh, by every altar on the clothes uh, taken in a uh, pledge. And so uh, in those days, if a, a guy uh, needed a little bit of money for food to work that day and he's absolutely poor, he could take his cloak, his outer garment, and he could give it to somebody who would then give him a few cents so that he could eat. But the law of Moses said, when the day was over, you give him back that cloak. Whether he can repay that money or not, you do not take that cloak from him because how is he going to stay warm at night without even having uh, uh, that, that cloak? And yet they were uh, despising that and, and they were uh, stripping everything away uh, from, uh, from uh, uh, the poor and and taking these things from the person that has no power and then uh, taking them a, a, as a, a pledge and using his, the garment then, as we'll see in a moment, as kind of a, a, a drop uh, cloth. Again, all of it forbidden uh, in the Scriptures. The Bible commends uh, the generosity to the poor, certainly toward uh, the working poor. And imagine being so hard-hearted that for a few cents, I take this man's outer cloak, which I would never wear. They would never wear it. They, they wouldn't put, go so low as to wear the man's cloak. But they take it to the temple, and they use it as a drop cloth to sit on while they worship their gods. And, and, and don't have anything, any kind of confusion in their minds of wondering what kind of human being is my God, this idol that I'm worshiping, producing in me that I can do this to another human being, take from him his source of warmth 
so that I can have something to sit on in the dirt and not get dirty. And so the Lord, uh, he, he condemned uh, uh, this kind of thing of taking advantage of the poor. And then he goes on and he talks about, uh, and drink the wine of the condemned uh, in the house of their God, and the condemning of, uh, of the uh, drunkenness and, and the seared consciences that, that they had in their in their idolatry. Yet it was I, God said, who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots uh, beneath. And so God said, I am, I, they were guilty of a very arrogant pride revealed in their mistreatment of their fellow man. And, and God saw it in their hard-heartedness. And He said, I'm going to judge you because of it. And then He goes on in verse 10 and says, Also it was I who for, uh, brought you up from the land of Egypt and led, led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And, and so God is condemning the fact that they, in their treatment of other human beings, in their graceless treatment of other human beings, they have forgotten how gracious God was to redeem them from Egypt and to bless them all of their uh, years. And it's really an ugly thing when uh, a Christian, when, if we fall prey to forgetting how much grace God has shown us, and then we become graceless in our treatment uh, of, of other people. And God notices it, and He doesn't like it. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men uh, as Nazarites. And is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Do not prophesy. And so here they are in the midst of all of their sin, and yet God raised up prophets to speak to them, and they ordered the prophets not to speak. There were Nazarites who had taken Nazarite vows, which meant that they were not going to eat any fruit of the vine. They weren't going to shave, uh, shave their, their hair as a, an evidence of their consecration to God. And what did the culture do? Israel claiming to know the God of the Bible, what they did is they, rather than listening to the prophet and the Nazarites, they did everything that they could to get the Nazarites and the prophets to stumble them from their faithfulness to God. They didn't want to go to the light, so they wanted to put the light out in, in them. And we live in that culture right now. And, you, and all of us, I think, we've hit it within our lives where people look at our, our, our life with the Lord, they, uh, they see what we stand for, they're convicted by it, and their solution is not to come where we are in God, but now to somehow tempt us to destroy our Christian witness and to compromise our relationship with the Lord. And, and to be wise about that, that there are people who will do anything to destroy our walk with the Lord to satisfy uh, their, their guilty conscience as a solution. And behold, I am weighed down by you. As a cart is full of sheaves is weighted down, God said to them, and therefore flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift of foot shall not escape, and nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous men of might, in terms of the military there in uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, they shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord, speaking of the uh, judgment that he would bring upon them even the bravest uh, warriors would drop their weapons and, and cloaks and run for their lives, and even they wouldn't escape. And all of that uh, prophecy uh, came to be fulfilled in, in 722 uh, B.C., just 30 years after Amos prophesied to them when the Assyrians would come into the land and, and utterly destroy the northern kingdom of Israel and take uh, captive uh, all of the people there and, and bring the northern kingdom of Israel uh, to an end. And so this series of, 
of uh, prophecies to uh, the eight nations that are, are given here. It's very insightful in, in terms of something for us. We look at it and say, well, yes, we're talking about, uh, you know, 2,000, uh, 2,700 uh, years uh, ago in, in human history, but all of it speaks today in terms of what God looks at and how much more in our lives as Christians because uh, we have a greater privilege in being indwelt by the Holy Spirit and, and, uh, and, and being a part of this new covenant. And so to look at this and just allow me to just go right through the reasons that He judged these eight nations and just allow Him to check our own hearts this evening for any presence of this in our lives. Uh, cruelty towards others. Uh, enslaving others for profit. Uh, truce-breaking, when making money becomes more important than me keeping my word uh, to other people. A perpetual unforgiveness or a long bitterness that exists uh, in our hearts. Destroying the innocent lives of mothers and children, the most vulnerable in life. Uh, possessing a spirit of revenge, um, despising and disobeying God's Word, uh, corrupt judgment or corrupt decision-making in my life, covetousness, sexual immorality, taking advantage of the poor, uh, drunkenness that comes out of a seared uh, conscience, uh, pride manifested in a graceless treatment of other human uh, beings, especially in the light of how gracious God has been to us. And then finally, uh, seducing the righteous to sin. Well, that's quite a list. Uh, that's quite a list to say, to look and say, boy, I wonder if, I, if, I wonder if God has a list in the Bible and, and, um, and it's like, okay, there's the three but this takes you to four. This takes you too far in terms of how he looks at things. And that's the list that shows how he sees things. And it's important to have something like this in our lives, in the light of the world that we live in where there is no acknowledged absolute ultimate truth. And so it's a free-for-all morally and, it's a, and, and spiritually. And uh, a, a, as if God doesn't exist and as if He won't judge. And the importance for us of steering clear of this kind of thing in our own lives. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. If the worship team would come forward and prepare us for closing song, that'd be great. Father, thank You so much uh, for this uh, book of Amos. And we thank You for these early chapters here which um, speak to us of these things. And we pray that You would uh, check our hearts tonight for any kind of presence of these things in our attitude and our actions in any way with the recognition that these are the kind of things that will force You to chasten and will force You to judge. Thank You for the warning of Your Word, Lord. And we ask that you would use this time to purge us of all of this stuff that is now so common around us in the culture in which you've called us to live for you. And we ask for this work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.